Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guest to tell me five things from their life that they would choose to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything from any time in their life, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one that they'd like to forget. My guest in this episode is the award-winning actor, writer, comedian, and improviser, Sally Hotchkiss. Yes, I know we've had quite a few improvisers on recently, but they're good value for the money. Not that I pay them anything. Anyway, Sally was born and raised in the northwest of England and then moved to London to attend drama school, where she now lives. Not the drama school, obviously, but London, which is easier because it's got more accommodation and fewer young people pretending to be a tree. Sally performs regularly on the comedy circuit, most recently as a guest with the Comedy Store Players. Other notable comedy credits include Whose Line Is It Anyway Live and the Stephen Frost Improv All-Stars. Her acting career has taken her to many theatres around the UK, including the Manchester Royal Exchange, Sheffield Crucible, Octagon Theatre Bolton, Home and Theatre Royal Plymouth, among others. She also has extensive screen experience, including several short films and features, such as It Could Happen to You, which was selected for the New York Short Film Festival 2021. Sally was chosen to take part in a highly acclaimed Royal Court Theatre playwriting group and is currently developing her play Whose Woods Are These? with her collaborator Neil Ashdown, as well as working on several film projects. Sally recently starred in Jack and the Beanstalk at Norwich Theatre Royal, alongside her partner and past guest on my time capsule, Rufus Hound, to rave reviews. It was the highest grossing pantomime in the theatre's history, and Sally's performance as Princess Jill was celebrated by audiences for her positive portrayal of female self-empowerment. And there is no doubt that Sally is totally self-empowered, as you'll discover as you listen to the choices she's made for her time capsule. 
Here is the powerful Sally Hodgkiss. So what have you been up to recently? Uh, well, Rufus and I have just got back from doing Panto at Norwich Theatre Royal, which was a joy. It was the first time I've ever done Panto. Right, really? Yeah, I've done Christmas shows, sort of had the elements of Panto. You know, the songs, the audience chat, but it's a really different beast. Mm. And the comedy is very different. And just the kind of energy and dynamism of Panto, it sits in a different territory. So I was really excited to do it. And everybody said to me beforehand, you'll be so tired. You don't understand how absolutely exhausting Panto is. And I was sort of going, yeah, yeah. Um, I, hey, look, I'm young and vital. I'll be fine. <laughs> and actually I was during the run. I didn't feel tired at all. I felt really energized. And I just loved it. You know, I mm-hmm. absolutely thrive off audience interaction. And thankfully my character could talk quite a lot to the audience and all that sort of stuff. It was only at the end of the show where we got home and my body went, oh, Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we were pretty tired at the end of the run. And we were also, he was really grumpy and I was really emotional. So we had quite a testy week when we got back. But prior to that, it was really a glorious experience. I loved it. It was wonderful. And Norwich is a beautiful city, isn't That's it? That's a great place to do it as well. That's a fantastic yeah. theatre. Brilliantly yeah. run. I mean, it's got the real core of being a proper theatre there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the audiences were fantastic. Mm. They just really got into it from the moment, I mean, on arrival, really, because you know, you hear over the tunnel, it's sort of buzz and you're sort of listening to figure out how, how, how big the house is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's just the season, isn't it? People are looking for something fun to do with their friends and family, and there's not much more fun of a thing to do than go to Panto. No, no. Um, and yet it does ask you to give those things up, really, doesn't it, when you're doing it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you'll be doing two shows on Christmas Eve, manage to eat something yeah. on Christmas Day, and then go to bed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, well, that was it, because we had Christmas Day off, and we, of course, had two shows on Christmas Eve, and then we got in the car, drove to London. At midnight, I'm peeling potato. <laughs> and then we sort of got to bed at about two, he then goes and collects his children in the morning. His mum and stepdad come. His kids are here. We do the full dinner. We did it properly. And in fact, because the kids were really keen, because Rufus and I are plant-based-ish. We largely just eat veggie vegan all the time. But the mm. kids were really keen that they wanted a proper turkey. Right. So I'm smug about this, and I think I'm right today. <laughs> I confied the turkey legs three days before Christmas in between two shows. Bloody hell. In between the matinee and evening show, I went home and confied two turkey legs. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be smug. Yeah, and it was a great success, but I'm glad that I did it. It sort of took half of the stress off on the day. But mm. actually, it wasn't stressful. We, and we were wiped out, but I think they're just the joy of being with family. It's that same adrenaline rush as doing the show. You're just present in that moment. And then your body hates you afterwards. Yes. I guess you've done Panto, have you? I have. I'm not sure if I have the energy left to do it. Every time I go to see it, I went to see it this Christmas, mm. I think, oh, God, I'd love to be up there. I quite enjoyed, I have to say, the first Christmas I had for a long time where I didn't have to squeeze Christmas in. Yes. Oh, having the space to do what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll just cast me as the king. That would be, a, I can just come on and bumble about a bit. Well, that was what Rufus was. Rufus was the king and I was his daughter. Ah. Which was a dynamic I found terrifically funny. 
And I, I don't know that he found it as funny as I did because he's not that much older. He's only six years old. <laughs> so I think that was a slight blow to his ego, but I thought it was terrifically funny. <laughs> did you keep suggesting to the director, shall we have lines in about, don't you want to sit down, Dad, at your age? <laughs> yeah. Go easy, Dad, go easy. Yes, there was a bit of that from me that wasn't in. <laughs> yeah, tell me about the good old days. Oh, you're cruel. Yeah. Uh, yes, I am. I'm very cruel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, we're going to explore your amazing career and life. <laughs> Anybody who can do improv the way that you do, I'm an instant fan of. I've tried it. I find it difficult. I think you'd be fabulous. I've never really been given the chance to do it enough to relax enough. I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. God, yes. No, when I first started, I was terrible and I hated it because you're sort of full of fear. You want to get it right. You want to be funny. Every moment that you're not funny feels excruciating. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was a real moment for me where I went, oh, oh fuck it. And then as soon as I said, fuck it, I started really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And actually the moments where things went wrong with the most delicious bits. Yeah. Surely one of the many joys of that art form is if something isn't working, do something else. Yeah. You have permission to go anywhere, do anything, create any character, create any world. So if it's not working, that's fine. Go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I, agree. I mean, that's one of the great thrills that you don't know what's coming. Even with people that you know terrifically well, they will always surprise you. And that's the most exciting bit. Yeah. Then we're in sort of written word territory, which is glorious for a completely different reason and wonderful. You know, I, I love any scripted work that I do, mm. but, you know, the, the danger of improvising is what I find so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if you can improvise, you can definitely act. <laughs> As a discipline, acting is easy, really. I think in comparison... Yeah to that thing of yeah. just letting things come out of your mouth. It's amazing. Yeah, but you're an expert. You know, you've been doing this some time, right? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> just take the compliment, Mike. Okay, all right then. I love the fact that when somebody does throw in something left field, which, of course, is what it is all the time, really, yeah. that's what you're looking for, everybody goes with it. Everybody says, great, yeah. and they jump on board, as it were. Rather than being annoyed that somebody's thrown a spanner into the works, the whole process is throwing a spanner into the works. Oh, yeah. When people make such left-field moves that you could either panic and go, I don't know what the hell to do now, (laughs) or go, okay, great. This is a brilliant new game that I get to play. So if if my first item, if I may, go into the time platform, is not an item, it is a person, and it's Stephen Frost. Oh, the lovely Stephen Frost. The lovely Stephen Frost, who I am afraid I'm burying in the earth because I love it so much. <laughs> so Stephen, I have known for now about six years, I think. And um, I credit all of this really to him. He's changed my life completely because he is <laughs> hes unreliable and he was late to a gig. <laughs> so what happened was I was performing at a venue in London Bridge and Stephen was on after that with Steve Steen and Lee uh, doing a show called The Act Nightmare. Mm. But Frosty was late and so late that they weren't sure that he would make the show at all. So Steve and Lee said, 
they didn't know me, we'd never met, but this is sort of the joy of improvisation. They said, would you mind stepping in and being in this show? It's an improvised play. We don't take any suggestions. We just sort of go and see what happens. And I kind of went, of course, not a problem. So then we started this show and then about a quarter of an hour before the end, Stephen Frost walks on stage with a pint of beer. (laughs) 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 Oh, he was late, but he's got his priorities set. You know, the man wants a drink, he's got to get a drink first. (laughs) But anyway, they sort of liked my work, I guess, and we all got on very well. And so they then asked me to join that show, which we still do. The actors like, oh, it's it's gorgeous. Mm. Um, But then what happened then was Frosty and I just got out on my house on bikes and he said, do you want to come and do the Impro All-Stars? And sort of being a guest in that. So I went and did that. And it's me, Steve Steen, Andy Smart and Frosty. These men that I've sort of grown up watching on TV, you know, on his line, is it anyway? And all the different comedy show or blackout without everything that they've done i'm very familiar with all of their work so i'm standing there thinking what the hell is going on <laughs> why am i now in surrounded by these sort of titans of comedy but of course you just say yes if somebody offers you a gig you just say yes well do you see but that's why you're there because well, you said yes i mean there i think there are yeah. lots of people who would have gone but i don't know what it is i don't know how to do it i've never done yeah. it no i can't do that yeah, I think so. And a sort of old me may well have said that to myself. But I think when you don't have time to consider something, particularly with that first instant, they they really desperately needed another performer. And because it's felt quite safe to me, because it's an improvised play and I'm an actor, mm. I thought, okay, well, you know, that will be fine. And they are very good at making you feel safe, aren't they, as well? Oh, they're cool. Yes, they're wonderful. They're really wonderful. And they did that, all of them, all of them in different ways did exactly that from right from the beginning. Mm. And so, and so on and so on and so on. So then I started doing the Impress All-Stars a little bit more. And then Crossy said, do you want to come and do Glastonbury with us? Which was absolute <laughs> carnage. <laughs> in the very best way. Those oh. men are dangerous men. I love them. They are disgraceful um, old men. That's what oh, they are. Oh, dreadful. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I am very, very ready for one of them to collapse and die on stage. <laughs> you know, it could happen at any time. But not because they're old, just because, you know, they've lived lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only, though. That's exactly how they'd like to go. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that would be the perfect way for any of them go but then as i did glastonbury and then as a result of that um i got asked to join the company of whose line is it anyway and do that live show but actually that was a moment where i almost went i can't <laughs> because that felt so huge to me because i watched it every week when i was a kid with clive back and everything yeah 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 so clive was hosting mm. and greg Proop was in it uh Proop was in it mike mcshane Tony slattery all these people that i knew so well from my television as a child mm. But I said yes, and I did it, and it was just the most extraordinary experience. It really was. And I really had to make an active decision in doing that show to accept that I deserved to be there. Mm-hmm. Because I think if I'd have panicked and thought, I'm a kid, I don't know what I'm doing, I would have really screwed those shows up. Yeah. But as it was, I thought, well, no, they, they want me here. I deserve to be here. And it was great. Yeah. It was wonderful. But this is all as a result of, Frosty, sort of championing me, kind Being of just when, when we're in Edinburgh, you'll kind of thrust me in front of people and go, this is Sally, do you know Sally? Yeah. And he's a terrifically generous man. He's a very, very generous man. The stories of Stephen Frost are absolutely legion. Oh. Apparently there's a tour of Ireland that they did as a company store players where they were booked into quite nice hotels all the way around Ireland mm. for, I think, a three-week tour. And he never, yeah. ever checked into his room. 
Not one of the roots. <laughs> I can't well believe it. And you know what? I know so many stories that I cannot tell you on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I just admire them all. They're just such brave, fun, smart, wonderful people. Yeah. And obviously getting to know Andy then meant that I got to do the Comedy Store Players and got to know Josie, who is extraordinary. You know, what an icon. Yeah. They're all wonderful. I love them all very much. But I, I think Frosty is the beginning of the domino effect with all that group of people. And I feel very, very lucky to be part of that world. And, you know, ah. you are, you are, but, you know, yeah. deservedly so. You're in there by right. That's the important oh, thing. Oh, thank you. They're a very generous bunch of people and they've invited lots of people in in their time. And some of us have been lucky enough to do it with them, but we haven't become permanent members. They eventually know who the really good people are, and you're one of them. Well, thank you. <laughs> I find it very hard to just go, yes, all right, thank you. <laughs> I do genuinely think a big part of this is finding a group of people where you share the same language and the same sense of play. The Impro All-Stars are a great example because we're so naughty to each other. Mm. On stage, all the time, and we'll deliberately set one another up to do really difficult or unpleasant <laughs> or physically challenging things because, <laughs> because we sort of want to do that to one another, but we're safe enough to do it because we fundamentally all really care about one another mm. and know each other's boundaries. You know, We would never truly put someone else in danger but we like testing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steve once gave me the most terrible piece of advice. Uh, <laughs> I, well, on, we this? flew to Bruges to do a show. Uh, I'd got a phone call, I think, about an hour before they left, saying, Mike, are you free tonight? And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. They said, oh, good, do you want to go to Bruges? I said, okay. They said, quick, get to the city airport. And while we were going, I said, what are we doing? And he said... Well, we're doing an improv thing in front of a bunch of businessmen. It's to do with the millennium. I said, actually, I'm, I'm quite nervous about it. He said, oh, that's all right. Come with me. We'll both get pissed. You'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go with him because I wouldn't have been able to walk. Oh, don't drink with them. They're dreadful. I mean, they're formidable in every sense. <laughs> How fantastic. Steve Frost, I'm delighted. Yeah. It's already a big time capsule, though, because he's a big man. Oh, yeah, imagine how frightening it would be to crack that open. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, that's number one. So what's number two then? Uh, number two is, I don't know whether to put the whole street in or the street sign or just a cobble from mm -hmm. Canal Street in Manchester. Maybe a cobble so that people can still use it. Oh, that's nice, yeah. Because I feel like if I took the whole street, mm -hmm. I would be depriving Manchester of one of its great pleasures. So maybe I'll take a cobble and we'll know that it's from Canal Street. Okay. And it is in honour of Canal Street. Right. For people who don't know it, describe Canal Street to me. So Canal Street is in Manchester, in the city centre, and it is the hub of the LGBTQ plus community. And it was very important to me as a young person, it still is, as a place that is very supportive and welcoming and for a lot of us it's the beginning of finding a community and finding acceptance mm. so that's why that's why it's significant for me because when i was a young person i spent a lot of time there with my best friend ross who was a gay young man and i bisexual and we had another friend called Steve, and then the three of us would go down canal street on the weekends and we were far too young i mean i really don't know what our parents thought we were doing. I mean, <laughs> Ross's parents, were, they sort of just let him do what he wanted anyway. My mum was quite controlling, but she was also really naive. 
So I don't know whether she just thought we were going for dinner <laughs> as sort of 14. But I mean, I was really young. I was sort of 14, 15. And we would go clubbing <laughs> at that age. And it was wild. And it was the time when um, Queer as Vote was on TV. Mm -hmm which we absolutely adored and we'd never seen anything. I mean, I don't think anybody's seen anything no. like Queer as Folk. It was such a seminal piece of work. Yeah. So we would go and we would go to all the different locations that had been in the episode the week prior and we'd sort of act out lines. I mean, we couldn't act out a lot of it because if you, if you have seen it, it's very graphic. <laughs> but, you know, it, we sort of felt seen and represented. I mean, particularly for Ross, I think. Ross had always known that he was gay since he was an infant. Mm. It was sort of in no question for him, but there wasn't... In Bolton, there was actually. I was going to say, there wasn't really a big community in Bolton. There was, but there, were, there was one gay pub called The Church, which was <laughs> behind an old church. And actually, that was really lovely, but it wasn't sort of a thriving hub. Uh, no. <laughs> there was not a lot of bases for young gay people in those days. So I think it meant a great deal to him to find a community that he could bit part of yeah and i do you know it's continued to hold lots of happy memories for me over the course of the years and actually we so my my parents are gay my parents they're lesbian and they mike i don't we haven't got all afternoon so i'll do a really sort of a short version of this because <laughs> it is quite an odd story in that my so my parents are lesbians both called sue and sue for ease if i talk about my mom i'm talking about my birth mom mm -hmm. Um, and then I will, Sue is the other, yeah. Sue. Yeah. <laughs> so mum is my best mum. But they um, they were in a relationship for 20 years and they never came out. They were best friends and that was what they presented to the world. And of course, they had their little network of gay friends, but it was a very private club for fear of what that might lead to. And, mm. you know, I think Sue had had some persecution when, she was younger um, and my mum certainly you know my family my grandparents were not at all accepting of it um, and in fact when she fell pregnant with me they tried to make her have an abortion oh, I mean, it was a lot it was roadblocks at every corner it was very difficult for them so my mum had artificial insemination and we were kind of right at the beginning of that mm. and when she was at the clinic the nurse told her what a disgrace she was for being a gay woman bringing a child into the world and then suggesting that she would give me AIDS. I mean, this is a nurse. Oh, yeah. Um, who is saying you're going to, you know, what you're doing is wrong. Mm. Um, you people spread AIDS. I mean, Ugh, God. you know, these are the people who are out supposedly helping. Yeah. So on every level, they were met with discrimination. So they made the decision not to come out, which included not coming out to me. So they never told me as a child that they were in a relationship. So they went to bed in separate beds so that I never saw them. Uh, they didn't kiss in front of me. And the older I got, the more I was sort of looking at them thinking, you two love each other. Mm. <laughs> you know, and of course they did. And, and you know, if my my experience of that was all very positive. I don't, I don't, the only thing I wish is that they had not been in a position where they suffered at all mm. at the hands of others. But I don't feel like my life were any 
worse for not having a father in inverted commas and so what it doesn't matter yeah, you say i was brought up in a situation that wasn't normal but uh, i mean define normal yeah quite I, I can't think of anybody i know whose parents relationship was the same as somebody else's parents yeah. relationship yeah. everybody grows up in a different situation some are happier yeah. some are not so happy absolutely but you grew up with two people who loved each other yeah correct and although they never said it directly to each other in front of me it was very apparent and they loved me and they were both terrific parents mm. I pried it out of them, basically, when I was sort of a young teenager. And it was fine. I didn't care. I never cared. That wasn't a, that wasn't it. I just sad that they felt that I couldn't be part of that conversation. It yeah. was no more than that. But in learning their experience, they absolutely understood where they had made that decision. Mm. So they separated. And my mum at that stage decided that she wanted to come out in her 50s, which was an extraordinary thing. And I was so <laughs> proud of her. But what he did mean is that when Ross and I were in the gay village when <laughs> I was a teenager, sometimes I would turn around <laughs> and look across the dance floor. Sue Hodgkiss would be there in a like white two-piece suit strutting and stuff. <laughs> and it was so it was such a funny feeling, Mike, because on the one hand, I was so proud of her and delighted that she'd got this new lease of life. But otherwise, she was still my mother and I was still a teenager and it was excruciating watching her dance in my mm. nightclub. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant though. Yeah, but you know, I so it just holds such wonderful memories for me. Mm. It's a place of real community and celebration and love. Yes, you know, there was a time when I knew it well, which is lovely. Yeah, yeah. So you spent a lot of time in Manchester. I I spent about five years on and off, most of the time working in Manchester at Granada Television, and um, the person I worked with most of the time was fantastically gay. Yeah. Very loudly gay and had the most beautiful boyfriend. He was a lovely man and they used to take me out. I used to go to Canal Street, we used to go to the clubs and mm. I had a, a fantastic time. In my experience, the best place, if you want to go somewhere and have fun, you should go to a gay club, go to a gay pub. And I always had a fantastic time. I felt incredibly safe in those environments. Yes, that was exactly it. Yeah. When, when I spoke to my peers who would just sort of go to icon or whatever nightclub it was in bolton it sounded bloody awful terrifying places yeah oh just horrid quite threatening quite um sexually aggressive and sort of the men behave like gorillas beating their chest and sort of sniffing around all the women that just wasn't the case for me that all my early going out pub clubbing i felt so safe and so welcomed i don't know there's something terrifically warm and supportive about it Mm. and that sense of community feels like it's fading increasingly yes unfortunately and yet in the last week this very uncaring selfish out for themselves nhs that we've got that apparently is falling apart around our ears and there's no way we can possibly afford it it would just cost far too much money to make it work i've had the most extraordinary treatment from them in no time at all in a very jolly friendly and caring way and done with amazing efficiency Yes, because they are not the problem. No. I mean, well, I was really lucky last year because I got to be in an improvised episode of Casualty. Right. Which was an extraordinary experience. I mean, cinematically, what, what an incredible thing to do and what a brave, from their perspective, to improvise a medical show. But it was about ambulance waiting times. And so it was very hard hitting. My, my role wasn't, I was sort of there as comic relief, I suppose. <laughs> but it was so, so true to the experience that most people are enduring at the moment. And it is not the ambulance crew's fault. It's not the hospitals. Oh. People are waiting hours and hours. Oh. Anyway, 
that I didn't want to talk about any of that in this because I'm just so annoyed about it. Come the revolution. Come the revolution, indeed, yeah. But what a place, Canal Street. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. We could just put one little cobble in and somebody's going to lose a heel over it. You know that, don't you? <laughs> well, it's all part of it, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> OK, that's two things. So we're going to move on to your next thing. Right, I think we'll take a short break for some adverts here. Unless you're an Acast Plus listener, where the short break will be even shorter, as it won't contain any ads. See you in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Right, let's return to the actor, writer, and improviser extraordinaire, Sally Hodgkiss, and find out what else she'd choose for her time capsule. My third positive thing would be ghost story. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you like them? I love them. <laughs> I love all things spooky. And I always have since. I, I think I was quite a weird, I think I was quite a weird kid. <laughs> it's particularly odd to be reading Goosebumps and Point Horror. You know, there's something very thrilling about those books. But when I was a child and my friends would come to play at my house, because I lived rurally, we lived on quite a remote farm. Mm. And I would just terrorise my friends by making up these <laughs> I mean, on reflection, I think we're probably quite psychologically damaging for them because 
Well, my friends were all just nice, decent, normal people. And we'd be playing outside, and then I'd sort of make up some horseshit that there would be five bodies buried under that tree. <laughs> and I speak to about it because part of this for me is I just love storytelling anyway. To be a storyteller or to be on the receiving end of hearing a, a good story is really thrilling. But there's something ex- so exciting to me, particularly about ghost stories, because it is that sense of the unknown and the other that is so thrilling. But why I would choose that as a dynamic to have with my friends as an infant, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, was it a weird power play? I don't Or was it that I just wanted to share something that I genuinely thought was very exciting? But, you know, that, as it turns out, it's not quite so common. Not everybody loves being scared. No, particularly young children. Are you going for a sleepover at Sally's? They said, nobody ever sleeps at Sally's. Nobody. <laughs> no. You know, and they'd sort of want to talk about boys. And I would say, oh, yes, did I know this one boy? <laughs> and immediately it would be some weird horror story that I'd make up. But I, in part, blame my parents for this because they loved all that stuff too. So I was, I watched a lot of horror films from a really young, I mean, really young age. It was wildly inappropriate, I think. And we would sit and watch all kind of old classics, things like uh, Halloween and oh sort God. of the John Carpenter. So quite like proper horrible. Yeah, really horrible. <laughs> fog. Oh no. Yeah. Um, but it was just one of the things that we did, so it was really normalised for me. But you know, on reflection, that's not that. Normal. <laughs> um, and a really weird thing that I do, which I hold to being pretty odd, is that I'm not a great sleeper, and if I can't get up to sleep, I'm quite often will put on a horror film to watch. To then go to sleep. To relax you. Yes. And I figured it out, Mike. It's not just that I am a potential murderer. It is, I think I think this is why I do it. Because I find them so exciting and sort of edge of your seat, what happens is I get an adrenaline rush mm. and the, the thrill of that moment, and then I crash and it makes me sleep. Ah, uh, yeah, the come down. Yeah, I think, because otherwise, Mike, I've, I've got real psychological problems. It's people who sleep next to you don't like it. They think it's really weird. (laughs) Yes. I have memories of my wife. She finds it very funny to suddenly lie there looking like a vampire. I would love your wife. My wife's birthday is Halloween. Is it? We went to see Halloween at a midnight showing on her birthday once, and I lasted about five minutes. Did you really? You had to leave? I, I was on the floor. Hiding behind a chair. Oh, my. <laughs> she left with me. She said, I'm never taking you to the cinema again. Because I was shouting at the screen. I was actually, no, no, don't, don't, don't be stupid. Oh, so people like you do exist. Because normally you just see those in films, don't you? And those annoying people who get really involved in the film. That is you. You're real. That's me, yeah. Oh, well, then, no, I won't, I won't make you go into the cinema with me. And I won't pretend that if you come for dinner, I won't convince you that there are bodies buried in the garden or <laughs> that there's somebody who died in the house. That was a good one. I used to tell people that somebody had been murdered in the house and that was a, a, a white lady that would walk the whole way, all this shit. I don't know what the hell was. I don't know. What a horrible child I was. There's a lot of money to be made in it. It's a very That's big true. market, so write some of them down. Yes. The woman in black is just closing, right? So there's a market for it now. There's, wow. a, there's a space in the West End for a new ghost story to come out. Finally, yes. I did the show in the theatre that preceded The Woman in Black, and I was a young man when I did it. So that shows how long that's been in the West End. Yeah, 33 years. Amazing, isn't it? Extraordinary. I did once get asked to audition for that play, and I thought, I'll be too scared. (laughs) Oh, you would be so good in it, though. (laughs) 
You would be perfect. <laughs> True, but I have a feeling I'd be jumping alongside <laughs> the audience every time anything jumped out of the scenery. I'd be going, oh, I forgot that happened every yep. night. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> now, I've got a theory, though, Go on. that if you're good at making people scared, if you're good at relating a ghost story, that's because of your natural timing ability, and that would make you good at comedy. Oh, yeah, well, maybe. It's when to make people jump. It's when to make people laugh. It's yeah. the sensing of the moment. Yeah. There is something about sharing in this as well. You know, it's it's an oral history, admittedly one that not everybody loves. But when you find other people that do love it, and then, so, so um, Rufus's daughter is 11, and she really loves all this uh. stuff. And when we met, she asked me if I knew any good ghost stories. So I told her a couple. And then hearing her relay them to her friends and get the beats the same. Uh, yeah. But then add a little bit because it's, you know, it's an oral retelling. She gets to add a little bit, add a bit more colour. Yeah. And that's really a glorious thing. And it, <laughs> yes, it's, it's not comedic, but you're right. There is something about the beats and the moments and the rhythm mm. that is vital to making a good ghost story work in the same way that making a comedic sketch work. But also there's that fine line between being scared and being amused. Almost without fail, yeah. the moment that you jump, immediately afterwards yeah. you laugh. Absolutely. Well, maybe that's it. The, my, the beginning of my interesting comedy was some pretty weird and spooky roots. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to make people frightened. Yeah. yeah. It's a good yeah. skill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing that develop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So that's our third thing, ghost stories. Yeah. And we have one more thing that you want to keep and one you want to get rid of, which you can do in any order you want to. Oh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't mind. It's up to you. I don't know what they are. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, let's do it that way around Okay. Then. Let's get rid of the thing I don't want and then we'll end on the thing that I do want to keep. Lovely. So in thinking about something I would get rid of forever... I'm sort of thinking about the conversations that occur in our house all the time that make me feel a lot of big things, you know, the plight of women or capitalism or the state of the government, which I've touched on here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of big things that I carry in my body and my brain all the time. But I'm not going to put any of those in. I'm <laughs> going to put in having cold boobs. <laughs> having cold <laughs> When your tits get cold, like, yes. it's excruciating. I can imagine. It's terrifically painful. Because <laughs> um, I sort of said this to as a joke earlier, and actually then I thought about it, and it, it is very real. It's incredibly painful. <laughs> so the reason it <laughs> bugs me so much is, A, it's really painful, and I'm one of those people who, when you get, I get cold bones, so once I'm cold, I'm cold. Mm. I can't recall, which I hate saying. Having, you know, I'm a northern woman. I, it feels somewhat pathetic to say <laughs> once I'm cold, I'm cold because, you know, I'm from a cold terrain. <laughs> but particularly when you get cold boobs, it's really painful, but it also fucks up whatever you're wearing because in the same way that I would imagine your testicles withdraw, mm -hmm. so do your boobs. So your bra then is so wildly ill-fitting. Really? Yes, so then they're sort of like clucking about like two satsumas in a helmet. It's, <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. One might come back to warmth at a rate that the other one doesn't, so you've got an, a like lopsided, uncomfortable swelling. <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, I love I love having boobs for loads of reasons. If you drop food, it, you, you can catch it more easily and re-eat it. You know, it just goes straight to the floor, toast, <laughs> toast crust. You can re, you know, reabsorb it. It's great. Um, you, can, you can put a drink between them and drink it. You know, it's another wallet. I can put cash in there. 
I can keep things under them. There, there are many functions that are wonderful things in having breasts, but bra shopping is another thing that I can't bear. It is the most boring. I don't know if you've ever been bra shopping. Mike. Well, I've played dame, so I have. <laughs> so you went bra shopping to find the one. Genuinely for myself, yes. Amazing. And how was that experience for you? They did say, what are your wife's sizes? And I said, no, it's for me. Great. And I got the sort of look that people used to get before Canal Street. <laughs> they were very helpful and measured me and all sorts of things. Yes, I bet they were very helpful because you are a bloke coming in for a bra, which I imagine is not what they get on a daily basis. No, but of course, um, then when I wear the bra, what I'm wearing is virtually weightless, whereas I've always thought it must be quite difficult on the back muscles for women with large breasts. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have big boobs particularly, um, but what what another thing happens is they change in size constantly, not just right. for being cold, because you know, when your weight shifts, and my weight shifts all the time, never on purpose, just by accident, mm-hmm. um, I'd think very little of it, and suddenly I'd put on three quarters of a stone, and what that means is my tits have gone up three cup sizes. Right. But I, of course, don't have, I'm unwilling to fork out for another bra because it's the most boring experience <laughs> on earth going to bra shopping. <laughs> so then I'm trying to cram them into a thing that's too small. <laughs> or if I lose loads of weight, then sort of flopping about in a windsock I'm unwilling to buy a bra that fits it's very boring buying sexy lingerie is pointless <laughs> because you feel great when you put it on but then you show <laughs> you show your partner and then it's off within 20 seconds <laughs> 10 seconds so I've spent 50 quid on a lovely bra for what <laughs> for um, what you might as well have just gone look I've cut out the bra there they are yeah, <laughs> let's get yeah, to exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you just get rid of the faff because we all know where this is going. <laughs> I've made a nice romantic gesture to what end? You just want to see the goods. I can't believe that I've got to my age and I don't know that breasts change size according to how warm or cold it is. Of course. Of wow. course, it is the same as your testicles. Well, not quite the same. Though. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Slightly <then>. different. <laughs> yeah. But yes, they do. So, you know, when you're hot, they swell. And when you're cold, they they withdraw and shrink. And, of course, your nipples betray you at all times mm-hmm. because they've got a mind of their own. So they might want to make themselves known to the wider public. With, and there's very little I can do about sort of rub it to it stops, <laughs> um, which is not a thing you can necessarily do in public spaces. No, not really. No. <laughs> in the wings, yeah. maybe, but... No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Frantically rubbing my tits so they stop being gold. <laughs> um, but as I say, you know, once it's in my boat, it's in my boat. So if the girls are cold, <laughs> the girls are cold. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, yes, I... Mm. Bras, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit flummoxed, I think. Yes, I'm sorry to do that thing, right? No, it's all right. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That why do men not think about that? Why do I not know about those things? Why am I not aware, having spent all my life living with a woman, <laughs> the details of a woman's life? It's very strange how, as a young man, really? we're not taught anything, anything about women yeah. at all. Nothing about women's bodies. I wasn't. No. And I don't know if that's changed or not. I think it's changing. I think it's getting better at schools, I believe. The education around this stuff is wider reaching, but I wouldn't say that it was good. No. But actually, you know, I wouldn't I would say that not just for men. I lots of my friends who are my age don't know different parts of their body. They don't know which bit of the labia, you know. 
we were not taught that. And we have them. It's amazing. Wild, isn't it, really? And then as things go on, <laughs> I mean, I what young man is taught in school about the possibility that eventually, if you are with a woman and you stay with a woman for some time, you will have to go through, along with them, the menopause. Yes. And most women don't even know what the menopause is. Oh, my God. And that, I mean, the, the menopause is a, a colossal taboo still. Um, mm. And, they, you know, you either don't talk about it or you joke about it. And it's awful. It is. I mean, I t- I've touched wood, I'm not quite there yet, but a lot of my friends are. A lot of my friends have gone through it. And good Lord, they do not feel like they are in possession of any of their own faculties anymore. It's as no. though you leave your body. It's a bit like when you're a teenager and you're, you know, you're going through the, all those hormones at that time. It's the same. It's just the opposite. So that level of distress, the body that you are in doesn't feel like the one you know anymore. Yes. And you can't control, you can't, the hot flushes, the moods, the emotions, the pain, all of it. And we just Mm. don't talk about it. No, no. Well, we don't talk about periods. No. The time of the month. What a phrase is that? You know, it's not discussed. No, not at all. I think if you ask men to tell you exactly what it was, they wouldn't really know. No. No. Why? This is over 50% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not only that they don't know, it's the level of discomfort around this sort of subject matter, which then mm-hmm. makes it very difficult. Because what it does is not only is problematic conversationally and just sort of in terms of knowledge, it makes women feel very ostracised and as though they can't talk about any of this stuff without it making people feel uncomfortable. Oh, no, I don't really want to hear about that. Well, no. hang on, actually, I, I want to tell you because I am in excruciating pain and I need to lie down for four hours. Mm. It needs to be part of the daily conversation, but it's not. No. It's still taboo today, which is nuts to me. But the idea is that you're really just supposed to put up with it. Exactly. I mean, sorry, we don't really know what to do about that. Well, why don't you? Why don't? Why have we not found out some way of doing something about yeah. this? If men every month were basically knocked out for about three days and couldn't do anything, yeah. the whole of the medical profession would be working intensely <laughs> yeah. to try and solve yeah. it. And yet yeah. they're not with women. No, and the no. same with the menopause. No, it's very isolating. And particularly if you're engaging with people who are medical professionals who can't offer you anything. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of send you off and say, here, have some, have some paracetamol. That, that isn't enough. I find it exhausting, Mike. It's very tiring being female. Mm-hmm. And although I see change all the time and I'm grateful for that, it's not just news stories from other countries where women are getting stoned, you know, which I can't believe that I would be saying to you today that that mm-hmm. is the thing that still exists and it sort of goes back to what we were saying before about the anger and fear that we are all feeling but you know we're unfortunately everybody's carrying a pitchfork and i think we're going to stab one another to death there's no unity anymore we're not going to support the community it doesn't feel like that if everybody is just floating about terrified yes you do want to have a feeling as if you're going to go somewhere and somebody put their arm around you yeah. rather than in your pocket or say, you know, well, um, I would do this, but we can't afford it. Yeah. We can't pay for everything, you know. There's no money tree. Yeah. I think there is. Mm. I think they haven't told us. I think they know where it is. Yeah, of course they do. It's in the garden of number 10. It absolutely is. That's the first thing they do. They don't give them the nuclear code. They tell them where the money tree is. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Oh, listen, I, w- I wouldn't put anything past those charlatans. <laughs> really but wouldn't. honestly, with cold boobs. Cold tits in the bin. 
please. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's it. Gone. You don't have to suffer it again. If anybody's listening to this, please, somebody invent a bra that reacts to it turning cold and just keeps your boobs warm. Thank you. Yes. I want to see you on Dragon's Den, Mike, please, with that. <laughs> <laughs> with me demonstrating it yeah. in full drag yes yeah, <laughs> brilliant okay so we've got one more lovely thing that you want to put into the time capsule uh one more lovely thing which is a specific memory but it is sort of indicative of a feeling that i have so the memory is this it is being in the sea in thailand and <sighs> body slamming Rufus, my partner, into the sea and trying to expose his genitals to a group of very wealthy people on a beach who were having a party. (laughs) (laughs) So that is a thing I would really like to keep. Did you manage it? Yes, it was great. It was great. (laughs) And I was really, because he's quite strong and he's not a small guy, you know, he's getting him over my shoulder with his bare ass out was difficult. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, no, it was just so ridiculous because we were we went on holiday in November of last year and it was, I think, just the most extraordinary trip I've ever been on. It was incredible. We kept crying. We cried for the whole time because we felt so sort of lucky to be there, but lucky to have found one another, all that sort of thing. But that moment, there was, a, there was sort of a posh cocktail party happening on the beach and we don't sort of engage with that. I mean, sure, I love a cocktail, but we don't necessarily feel that we fit in with that sort of thing. So we did the thing that we thought would be more fun, which was to wrestle each other in the state. But as <laughs> ever between Rufus and I, it escalates to a degree that is problematic. And with normal people, they would find that embarrassing, but he, neither he nor I gets embarrassed. Uh, no. So it's, what's the next thing? Yeah, I think it's a very good thing. If you're a person in life who doesn't mind excess in a sense yeah. of, you know, behaviour, who yeah. finds it amusing. Well, that's it. And that's sort of more what I'm speaking to, really. That incident will be forever in my heart as a really fun moment. But that's it. Sort of making the most fun of the life that you have, making the most fun decisions in that moment and following adventure and choosing joy. And, like you, can, you know, life, it's not straightforward. You cannot always do that. But in the moments where you can, mm. what's the most fun thing you can do? <laughs> and I've sort of made a real conscious decision after the pandemic, well, not after the pandemic, it was sort of still in the pandemic, but as we were coming out of the worst of it, um, because that was a dreadful two years for everybody, wasn't it? It was, mm-hmm. it was awful. And for me personally, I lost my uncle to COVID really early on. Uh, and then my, but in fact, I spoke about him earlier when I was about Ross, who we went to Canal Street with, my oldest friend. He mm. um, very sadly developed cancer and had a terminal diagnosis. So I moved in with him to be his end of life carer during lockdown. So um, I looked after him while he passed away. Mm. And that was really sort of a, a, an enormous moment for me where, you know, Christ, he was 37. He was incredibly young. God. Um, and to lose somebody at any age, you know, one of my mums died when she was 39. To lose anybody at, at any age is incredibly painful. But for somebody who's 37, it just felt particularly cruel. Mm. And we had a lot of, conv- you know, and he would ask me over and over again what would happen to him and ask me a lot of questions that I just simply couldn't answer. And, why, you know, why at his age would this happen? Mm. Um, and I think there was a... There was just a lot of sense of the unfinished 
for him, yeah. really. And he he sort of didn't say as directly say, "I want you to promise me that." But we had a lot of conversations around while you're alive, live. So I sort of carried him very actively in all my. It just it really changed my attitude to everything because I think prior to that, I'd, I have a propensity to be a little bit cautious and fearful and safe, really, which is no bad thing. It's got me through all right so far. But it doesn't always mean that then you you make the most fun and adventurous choice. And if you are lucky enough to be around, do that. And so I often, you know, I think about Ross all the time and think, what what would he have loved to do if he were here? What because he was really playful mm. and and silly and wild and wonderful. And and then of course in meeting Rufus, who is playful and wild and silly <laughs> and passionate. I mean, I love the fact that oh. both of you, when you talk about things that make you angry, you get angry. Yeah, he's passionate about these things. Yeah, we're quite an intense couple. <laughs> Well, but, you know, I think people should be. We should yeah. not just let it slide. It's very easy to look at life and think, yeah, well, one day. That's exactly it. So if we're lucky enough to be alive, then we must live. That is quite an intense way of looking at it. But it's, it is and it isn't. And the joy of, I mean, Rufus, it's been a great, it's been a great joy for me, which really <laughs> undermines what I mean about my relationship with him. And frankly, we were, it, it was a blind date. And all we thought it was going to be was dinner and a shag, mm. to be honest. And uh, and then he arrived at my house and I opened my door and we fell in love immediately. And it was I've never experienced that in my life. I really haven't. You know, I've, I've been in love before, but nothing like that. But one of the things that I loved immediately about him is, of course, that he's incredibly passionate. Um, but also that he has no sort of particular plan. He just wants to bounce around and follow adventure, which is very much how I want to and I've previously tried to do a little bit, but now I've sort of made a real conscious decision of what's the adventure, what's the joy. Yes. And that is so his direction. What's the most fun thing we can do in this moment? Well, undoubtedly, I think it's slam dunking him on his back. I think so. And showing his genitals to the world. Yeah. And the even better thing about that is on his bum, he has a tattoo of me. <laughs> but, I mean, again, this is like, this is absolute mad decision. We... He got a tattoo of me after three months of knowing me. And then I got a tattoo of him after four. Now, I don't have any tattoos. Like, it was the first tattoo I've ever had. Mm. And I got in, in all honour of this man that I'd fallen in love with, which kind of 10 years ago, I would never think that I would do that because I'm really, as I say, pretty cautious that it's something that's going to be on my body forever. But I did just think, oh, fuck it. I'm in love. I'm alive. I'm going to fucking live. So we both mm. got tattoos. Well, then you did fall immediately in love yeah. at the doorstep. Yeah, we did. Which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Apparently, I said to my wife on the first night we met, when we get married. On the first night that you met? First night we met. Wow. And how did she feel about that? Well, I think clearly she must have liked it because she stuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> go big or go home. Yeah, I was being bold. Well, I'm going to let you get on with your life. I'm going to say thank you very much. Thank you very much. What an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Lots of love. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule, 
with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Sally Hodgkiss. I hope you had a good time listening to it. If you did, there are plenty more episodes available with all sorts of people, and if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll get sent all the new ones as they're released. Please do rate and review the show. I say that every week, but it's really important to us as it helps to raise our heads above the parapet that is the vast number of podcasts available out there. We really do appreciate people taking the time to help us in this way, so thank you if you can give us that time. If you like the theme tune, and who wouldn't, it was written by Pass the Peas Music, and it's available to stream or download from Spotify. Spotify, yeah, I wonder what made them come up with that name. Imagine being in the meeting. All right, OK, um, we want a good catchy name for a music streaming service. Any ideas, uh, Peter? Um, what about Tune River? Uh, and our theme tune could be the old hit Moon River, but rewritten, as it were. Hmm. Yes, Peter, you're fired. Sandra, what do you think we should be called? Um, Beat Treats? Yeah, I'll get my coat. Okay, right, Kenneth. Well, um, what do you think, sir? Well, actually, Kenneth, I quite like Spotify. (laughs) Spotify? Uh, No, seriously, sir, what do you really think? I think you should get your coat as well, Kenneth. And thus Spotify was born. I would have called it Stream myself. Says what it does on the tin. Anyway, enough of my rambling. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to do some hardcore laundry. At least I think it's going to be hardcore. I spilled some stain remover on my shirt. I mean, how do you get that out? Bye.